the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. In today's episode, we're sharing a presentation from MaxLawCon 2022. Keep listening to hear Jason Selk as we share his talk, Relentless Solution Focus, the ultimate measure of mental toughness. You can also head to the Maximum Lawyer YouTube channel to watch the full video. Now to the episode. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. What you do is you help the good guys win more often. You know, I was taught this. I grew up in middle America, Cedar Rapids. Iowa, very blue collar town. And where I'm from, people are very, very practical. And this is something that was taught to all of my peers growing up. And I'm sure it was taught to the generation before me and the generation after and so on. And it's a quote that's in my head all the time. When the good guys do nothing, the bad guys win. You know, and I'll say another thing. I'm not so sure this is something to be proud of, but where I'm from, most solutions, and I would say probably 99% of the solutions growing up where I'm from involved violence. Okay, so although some of my behaviors growing up were not in the good guy category because of that, I know one of my best friends today is my attorney. Truth be told, you all help the good guys win more often. And I know you don't hear it enough. Thank you. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for being here. Over the next hour, I'm going to try to give you something back, something that will help you be even just a touch better at what you do so that you can help people like me be better at what we do. All right, so I'm going to start, if I may, with a story. I'm going to go all the way back to 2006, March 19th. This is my first day on the job with the St. Louis Cardinals. I'd been asked by... Walt Jockety, he was the general manager of the team at that point in time, to help the players and coaches develop mental toughness, hopefully to win a World Series. At that point in time, it had been 24 years. And the way Walt and I put it together, I was to spend a week down in Jupiter, Florida. That's where the team has their spring training. And in that week, every day, to start the day, I was going to do a two-hour presentation with the players and coaches, and then I was to be available throughout the rest of each day in case any individual player or coach wanted some additional attention. 
And so I remember it was uh, the morning, early morning of the very first day that I was going to have the first presentation with the team. I'm standing in Walt's office, and he looks at me and says, you want to go meet Tony LaRussa? Now, if you're not a baseball fan, Tony LaRussa was the manager of the Cardinals at that point in time. And I thought it was a little odd that I hadn't met him yet, but this was my first opportunity with the team, and I was really just going with the flow. Anyway, so Walt walks me into Tony LaRussa's office. To give you a visual of Tony's office, it's maybe 14 by 14. Very bare bones office. There's no paintings on the wall. I'm not even sure if there's paint on the wall, honestly. Only thing in the office is a desk. And when Walt walks me into Tony's office, Tony's in his uniform, sitting behind his desk, working on some paperwork. And Walt says, Tony, this is Jason Selke. He's going to do the sports psychology for the team this year. And Tony barely looks up. I don't even think I get eye contact. And he goes back to working on what he's working on. And then there's this awkward silence in the room, maybe lasts, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. And I realize something's a little bit off. After about 10, 15 seconds, Tony stands up and he didn't have any pants on. All right. So you you, want to talk about humility when a man with no pants puts you in your place. And and listen, this is for me happened once. I hope for anybody in this room, for me a second time, it never happens. Okay, but he walks around the corner of the desk. He barely looks at me and he says these words. You have 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, well, I have a contract that says I'm going to be in there with you for two hours. And then you've got me all day and we're going to do that for seven days. And then you've got me roughly 20 hours a week all season long. And this is where it would have probably been good to have an attorney help me with this. I realized in that moment, I said, okay, I've got the contract, and I know I signed the contract, but I don't remember the Cardinals ever signing the contract. Now, again, I'm no attorney, but I'm fairly sure that's not binding. Accurate? Jim, you seem like an expert. Okay, that's not binding. All right, so I I think to myself, all right, I don't have a job with the St. Louis Cardinals. I have an interview, and it's a 10-minute interview, and this poses all kinds of problems because I've told everybody back here in St. Louis where I live that I'm already the new director of sports psychology for the St. Louis Cardinals. So I think to myself, okay, I've got 10 minutes. I better make it count. I go in the clubhouse. That's where the presentations to take place. Clubhouse is just a fancy baseball term for locker room, but it's a fancy locker room. It's probably not like the locker rooms you and I are used to. There's no metal lockers or banging doors. It really is a very well-appointed room about, oh, I would say 25% the size of this room. And there's nothing really in the middle of the room. All they have is the lockers, which are on the perimeter of the room. And each locker is essentially a four to five foot cutout space where each player has his personal items and uniform and so forth. And then in front of each locker, there sits a stool. And when I walk in that morning, all the players are in their uniforms sitting on the stools in front of their lockers. So if you go back to 2006, St. Louis Cardinals were a very veteran rich club in 2006. Over here in this far corner, all-star third baseman Scott Rowland. Right next to Roland, Jimmy Edmonds. Next to Edmonds, David Eckstein. A few players down, just coming off the 2005 Cy Young, Chris Carpenter. Right next to Carpenter, Adam Wainwright. Brand new pitcher on the staff this year. A couple players down from Wainwright, Yadier Molina. 
next to Molina, fellow by the name of Albert Pujols. Okay, and list of players goes on and on. And they had brought in a table that sat, I don't know, maybe 10 feet in front of where I was presenting from. And that's where the coaching staff was sitting. You had Dave Duncan, in my mind, greatest pitching coach of all time. You had Dave McKay, first base coach. You had Jose Akendo, third base coach. And then front and center, Tony La Russa. Pants are on now, by the way, thankfully. And I start the presentation this way. I said, originally... I thought I had two hours. I've just been notified I have 10 minutes. What I was going to cover with you is something called the mental workout. Mental workout is something I developed a few years back. It has since been proven scientifically to put you in a position to play better baseball more consistently. There are five tools in the mental workout. I won't have time to cover all five, but I will have time to cover one. And I launch into the first tool of the mental workout, something called the centering breath. Now, There's a post about right here from where I'm presenting, and on that post is a clock. And I finish the centering breath, and I can basically hear every second ticking away on that clock, and the clock's screaming at me that I've now been up here for eight minutes. I don't want to press my luck with Tony LaRussa, so I ask if there are any questions. Now, you know that silence that's worse than silence? Crickets chirping. That's what is deafening in my ears, and I'm thinking I'm just about to get the hook. And then, thankfully, Dave Duncan, this is, by the way, why I consider him greatest pitching coach of all time. Dave Duncan raises his hand and says, would you teach the second tool of the mental workout? And I look at Tony LaRusso, and Tony gives me the nod, and so I move into the second tool of the mental workout, something called a performance statement. A performance statement is essentially when each athlete is in competition, during play, what are the two or three at most focused thoughts they want to have that put them in a position to play most consistently? So we work through the second tool of the mental workout, the performance statement. Everybody identifies their two or three most important focus points. And again, I ask if there are any questions. Again, Crickets chirping silence, thankfully, this time doesn't go on as long. And then in the back corner of the room, our third baseman, Scott Rowland, raises his hand. Says, hey, would you teach the third tool of the mental workout? And I, again, look at Tony LaRusso, and Tony gives me the nod, and so I move into the third tool of the mental workout, something called the personal highlight reel. Personal highlight reel is three minutes of visualization in different scenarios where each player visualizes himself in competition only focusing on those two or three items. What it does is it takes focus from a pep talk to an actually trained skill. So I finished the third tool of the mental workout, the personal highlight reel, and Chris Carpenter. Now, keep in mind, Carpenter had just been voted 2005 Cy Young, which means he's one of the top two pitchers in all of baseball. And he's, without a doubt, with the Cardinals, one of the leaders on the team for all the right reasons. I finished that third tool of the mental workout, and Carpenter stands up, takes maybe five, six steps, so he's closer to the center of the room, and he says these words. Everybody better pay attention because this is what we need to take it to the next level. And I'm up front thinking, right? So I have this great fortune that Tony La Russa allows me to stay that first day and 
finish the two-hour presentation all the way through the mental workout, just as Walt and I had put together a few months in advance. And then he asks if I'd be willing to hang around and meet individually with some of the players and coaches, which I did. And then he invites me back for a second day and a third day and a fourth day and every day that week. And then he asks if I would work with the players and coaches about 20 hours a week for that 2006 season. 2006, St. Louis Cardinals win their first World Series in 24 years. And then I'm lucky enough, they asked me back for 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2011, in which time we win our second World Series. Now, I stepped down after the 2011 World Series as Director of Sports Psychology for the St. Louis Cardinals to pursue some other opportunities, but I start with you all today with this story for two reasons. One, I want to get anyone I can get to listen to me to know those two World Series, that was 100% me, please tell anyone you can get to listen to you. No. Truth of the matter is, when I was with the St. Louis Cardinals, I played a very small role. But I took that role very, very seriously. The real reason I tell you the story is I've had this great pleasure. You know, for 20 plus years now, I have literally been able to work with some of the most successful, most mentally tough individuals and organizations on this planet. And what's cool to me is I'm always studying you folks. I'm always watching to see, okay, well, what is it about this individual or this team that causes them to win so much more often than their peers? And it didn't take long with the St. Louis Cardinals before one of those patterns jumped out. In fact, it was in the first six, seven minutes of my first on the job with the team. See, go back. I'm standing in that locker room that very first day. And all those names I mentioned, I'm name dropping for a reason. All those names, more than likely, they will all, every one of them, be a Hall of Famer in a craft in this society that's very much respected, which means they're already the best in the world before Jason Selk ever walked in that room. And I walk in there, I'm a complete nobody, just hoping to get a chance. And I'll never forget, I was totally shocked when I saw six, seven minutes into that presentation, walking into that locker room. All those folks I mentioned, they're all taking notes. You want to guess who's taking notes most feverishly? LaRusso. That's right. Tony LaRusso, a man who knows more about baseball than anybody in that room combined. All right, now, I knew I was seeing something special. I didn't have the right words for it until a couple years later. I was working with one of the top players in the NHL, and I asked him this question. I said, why are you this good this long? And I'll never forget his response. He said... I have an obsession for improvement. I thought, that's it. That's what I saw with the St. Louis Cardinals that very first day and always. Now, the fact that you're sitting in this room, there's no doubt what it shows is you have that obsession for improvement. And I want you to be really proud of that. You know, in this day and age, especially I know this, people like you, highly successful people, you're not giving yourselves credit. You'll do a hundred things right, one thing less than perfect, and I know where you're putting your mind. And look, that's a recipe for disaster. That's a pure indication of mental weakness, just so you know. I want you to start thinking about the good things you're doing. 
I'm not worried about you being hungry for improvement. You wouldn't be in this room if you didn't have that obsession for improvement. All right, so be proud. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Be proud of that spirit you have that brought you in here. Now, again, I've got 44 minutes left. And let me see if I can help get you a little bit better at what you do. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit. And I'll come back to this obsession for improvement. But I want to shift gears and move into this concept, relentless solution focus. For me, you know, again, I've been so fortunate to study all these really, really successful people. And this is the number one pattern. I want to just real quick walk you through how my mind works when I work with an individual. I get hired. And then what my job is to find is a competitive edge for them. Sounds simple. And to me, it actually is quite simple. It's a a three-step process. Step one is, if I'm going to find the competitive edge, I need to know what is normal. What are your peers doing? What is your competition doing? And then I need to identify step two, what are improvements on that? And then step three, and I think this is where I specialize, is I'm looking for minimum time and effort, maximum impact. Minimum time and effort, maximum impact. And what I would tell you is this concept, this relentless solution focus, this is probably number one, if not number one, top three of all time competitive edge that I've found in my studies with people. This is the real deal. Okay, but as you're going to see, it's abnormal. It's abnormal for a reason. And we'll kind of talk about that. But let me introduce the topic. I'm going to tell another story. Let's go all the way back to October 13th, 1972. A fellow by the name of Nando Parado gets on an airplane with 44 of his best friends and teammates. They're headed to an international rugby competition in South America. Planes in the air for seven hours, and they're literally throwing the rugby ball around the cabin, and the plane crashes violently into the side of the Andes Mountains. Now, I'm going to ask you just for a moment to have perspective, to put yourself in Nando's position. Here's Nando Parado's experience just after impact. You're still strapped into your seat, but your seat is no longer a part of the airplane. Upon impact, fuselage was ripped wide open. Your seat was ejected. It's sub-zero temperatures. You regain consciousness by what appears to be someone taking handfuls of sand and throwing them in your face. That's the sleeting hail and snow. Feels like someone's taking a baseball bat to your head. And the worst thing is when you do come to consciousness, you quickly realize 18 of your best friends are no longer among the living. For just a moment, I'd like you to put yourself in that seat. Now, again, in that situation, it would be completely normal to allow your mind to focus on how bad the situation is. And let's be clear. I mean, this is horrific. Nando Parado refuses to be normal in that moment and instead forces his thoughts quickly to solution, doing so by making himself answer one simple question. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer? Inventory. And for 17 days, Nando forced his thoughts to focus on inventory of life, health, and resource. On the evening of the 17th day, as Nando and his teammates are huddled, 
in the belly of the fuselage in an attempt to use body temperature to survive another of the frigid temperature evenings, another problem. Avalanche comes down the mountain bearing everyone and everything. Now again, I'm gonna ask you to have perspective. Here's your experience now. You're totally submerged in snow. Absolute blackness, you don't know up from down. Again, it feels like someone's taking a baseball bat to your head. Worst part here, you can't breathe. There's no oxygen under that much snowpack. So for just a moment, again, put yourself in that spot. That would be totally normal to allow your mind in a situation like that to focus on the problem that literally now has you surrounded. Nando Parado refuses to be normal. Instead, he forces his thoughts to solution by making himself answer one simple question again. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer, dig. And that's what he does. He aggressively digs himself out and then goes to work digging the heads of his teammates out. In the avalanche, eight more of Nando's best friends pass away. 30 or so days on the mountain, another problem presents itself, starvation. At these temperatures, starvation sets in much more quickly. Nando's solution to the starvation problem was not a popular solution. This is where many people recognize very famous book about Nando Parado, Alive, very famous movie as well. Although Nando's solution was not a popular one, Nando Parado is relentless. We will use our perished teammates as food so that we can survive. In the end, everyone did eat. 62 days on the mountain, Nando realizes search and rescue is called off. If we're going to make it off this mountain, one of us is going to have to hike off. Now, they've run numerous models with numerous professionals to identify if, in fact, it's even humanly possible to hike off that mountain under those conditions. Every model, every professional comes back with the same response. It is not possible. Keep in mind, Andes Mountains, some of the most treacherous terrain literally in the world, some 40 miles from civilization. And yet, for 10 straight days, Nando Parado forced his thoughts to focus on one thing. One inch in the right direction. Sometimes literally requiring hours to move one single inch. And after 10 straight days of one inch, Nando Parado took one final step, bringing himself that much closer to a ridge, overlooking a raging river, seeing far in the distance a man sitting on a horse that would eventually save Nando's life and 16 of Nando's best friends and teammates' lives. Nando Parado has what you call a relentless solution focus. Now, my guess is everybody in this room has heard this pep talk in some way, shape, or form before. It's the old pep talk of be positive, don't be negative. And my guess is just about everybody thinks, yeah, that's, that's pretty good advice. I think there are plenty of us in this room also that would say, easier said than done. All right, so what we're going to figure out how is it that people like Nando Parado actually live it, actually execute on that? 
All right, now I'm gonna ask, everybody should have where you're sitting a handout. I'm gonna ask you to use the handout for this reason. I'm gonna talk for an hour and I'm gonna throw a lot of stuff at you and I don't want you to remember all this and you won't if you try. But I do want you to have record of what's most important. It's my job to figure out, okay, I know all this information, what's the most important stuff? And that's what this handout is. So please, if nothing else, it's gonna help you pass the time, okay? So get a pen and let's go old school, let's go pen and paper on this thing and if you're a digital junkie, you can take a picture of it when you're finished. First thing I want you to realize is the reason most of us appreciate being positive but have a difficult time doing it, and I call this the number one obstacle to mental toughness, is something called PCT. Question number one, problem-centric thinking. I'm gonna give you the definition. The biological tendency to focus on the negative. Let me explain. If you focus on the negative more than the positive, you're not broken. You're normal. Every one of us, biologically speaking, is built to focus on the negative. Hundreds of years ago, it was essential for survival of the species. It's what kept us in a fight or flight state or very close to it on a regular basis. So hundreds of years ago, it was essential for the survival of the species. Now fast forward hundreds of years, we live, even though we've gone through some of the things we've just gone through, this is still an extremely safe time period for human beings to be alive. To a point where this PCT mechanism is now extremely counterproductive for health, happiness, and success. Let me give you a couple examples of PCT. You do 100 things right, one thing less than perfect, and all you focus on is the imperfection, that's PCT. Here's another one. The most valuable resource known to our species. More valuable than all the cash, all the goods, all the, you name it. Anybody want to guess? Oxygen. Think about it. Without it, we die the fastest. It, for our species, biologically speaking, is the most valuable resource. When is the last time you thought to yourself, life is awesome? <sighs> Nobody in this room. All right, now compare it with, when's the last time you thought to yourself, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough respect. I don't have enough you fill in the blank. See, that's PCT. Again, we all have it, even the likes of Nando Parado, because it used to be important for our survival. Now it's so counterproductive for health, happiness, and success. The good news, although it's biologically ingrained, we can train it out and train RSF in. RSF is the opposite of PCT. Let me give you the definition of RSF. It stands for Relentless Solution Focus, the definition is within 60 seconds, those are the first definition, within 60 seconds, replace all negative thinking with solution-focused thought. Replace all negative thinking with solution-focused thought. Now, understand this, and I, I said something there, and I'm, I'm using these words strategically. The word is training. Understand this, here's kind of the principle. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire apart, wire apart. Our brain is a muscle just like our bicep. When a human being is born, 
Every human being ever born, the bicep is weak. With training, the bicep becomes strong. In fact, with training, it's almost impossible to not have the bicep become strong. Same is true for the brain. And again, I want you to understand, this is science. It's uh, neuroplasticity. If you train, if you force yourself to think in different ways consistently, that becomes the norm. If you stop thinking in normal ways, that becomes abnormal. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire apart, wire apart. We can get rid of PCT and exchange it with RSF with proper training. Of course, in this hour, I'm going to talk through what the training is. All right. Number three, question number three, a little pop quiz. It's normal to focus on what? Problems, the negative. It's 100% normal. There's nothing wrong with you if that's what you do. It just means you're totally normal. The goal of you listening here and coming to this conference is not to be normal. You're trying to separate. All right, so mentally tough people have learned to focus on solutions. All right, now let's talk about why this PCT RSF dilemma is so impactful to the species. The Guild is Maximum Lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you're granted exclusive access to quarterly in-person events around the country. The next Mastermind is coming up on July 20th and 21st in Denver, Colorado, featuring hot seat sessions and personal coaching with renowned performance coach Jason Selk. This event will give you the opportunity to work directly with Jason, who has helped countless high-performing individuals and teams reach their full potential. During the hot seat sessions, you'll gain valuable insights and learn strategies to help you overcome the challenges you're facing in your practice. For a limited time, you can get your ticket at the lowest early bird price. Head to maxlawevents.com to join now and reserve your spot at the upcoming Guild Mastermind. Something called expectancy theory. Here's your definition. That which you focus on expands. That's the definition of expectancy theory. I want you to understand this. Human beings, we are made up of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And what we know is our thoughts control the way we feel and the way we behave. If we can learn to control our thoughts, which we know we can, then we learn to control for the success of the entire organism. Control thoughts. We learn to control feeling and behavior. All right, let me give you kind of this expectancy theory out of a textbook, but into really kind of practical application or real life. I'll give you a split screen scenario. Okay, I'm going to give you two examples, and I'm going to use Major League Baseball as a backdrop. Okay, the first example is going to be a normal Major League player has not had any RSF training. And then the second player, I'm going to tell you a story about how his RSF training changes behavior compared to player number one. All right, here's the first scenario. And remember, this is a normal player, has no RSF training whatsoever. Bottom of the seventh inning, bases are loaded, his team's up to bat, they're losing by a run, two outs. This player, it's his turn to bat, digs into the batter's box, eyes down the pitcher, Gets his pitch and strikes out. 
Now, this is what happens in his head after the strikeout. Thinks to himself, oh man, this is not good. Second time in two weeks, I've struck out with the bases loaded. I got a contract year coming up. You know, we just bought that second home. I'm not sure we should have bought that second home. Frankly, if I don't get the major league contract next year, I'm not even sure we should have bought this first home. We haven't put enough away. How am I going to explain this to my wife? What will I tell our children? I'm a complete loser. Now, here's one thing, unfortunately, I know about all of us in this room. Everybody can relate to that. See, every one of us has had the experience of we make a mistake. There's a screw up and we focus on that mistake and that PCT tornado sucks us in. And the next thing we know, we can have ourselves convinced we are complete losers. Now, the problem is when that happens, life typically doesn't call time out so we can go suck our thumb or feel sorry for ourselves. In fact, life has a tendency right there to come at us even more aggressively. True to form, Remember, this guy just struck out. Now he's standing in the outfield and the game is still being played. And he's thinking to himself, I'm a complete loser. And now here comes a long fly ball his way. Now, this is a good guy. This is a guy you root for, 100% effort, but he's distracted. PCT has his attention just for a moment. So he doesn't get a good read of the ball coming off the bat, doesn't get a good jump. Once he sees it, he does take off. Everything he's got, dead sprint into the corner, even lays out trying to make the catch. Ball gets down, bounces around, rolls around in the corner. Now there's a man standing on second base, and his team is still losing by a run. Goes back to his spot in the outfield, and this is what starts up in his head. Oh, man, now this is really not good. On tape, it's probably going to look like I should have made that catch, not to mention second time in two weeks I've struck out with the bases loaded. Why did we buy that second home? I'm not sure we can afford the first home. I need to get that major league contract. What's wrong with me? How am I going to explain this to my wife? What will I tell my children? I'm a complete... Loser. Now, again, this is a good guy, but he's distracted. His brain's doing exactly what it was built to do. And unfortunately, here comes another long fly ball his way. Doesn't get a good read, doesn't get a good jump. Once he sees it, again, this is the guy you root for. Takes off, dead sprint, into the corner, lays out a second time trying to make the catch. Ball gets down, bounces around, rolls around in the corner. Now there's a man standing on second base, and his team is now losing by two runs. That which you focus on, you will expand. All right, now let's compare that with this player. Same situation, but this player has had some RSF training. He works on exercising his brain a minute a day, at least three days a week, so that RSF becomes normal and PCT becomes abnormal. Same situation, bottom of the seventh inning, bases are loaded, team's losing by a run, two outs, he's up to bat. He digs into the batter's box, eyes down the pitcher, gets his pitch and strikes out. See, RSF will not stop you from having problems. Having problems is part of the human experience. We're guaranteed to have them. What RSF does is it teaches you how to more effectively deal with the problems we're guaranteed to have. This is what goes on in his head. As he's headed to the dugout to get his glove, he thinks to himself, oh man, that's not good. Striking out with the bases loaded. Oh man, what's, okay now, here's where the difference, it's a two-step process. Number one, he recognizes that his thoughts are on the wrong thing. 
Step number two, he reframes, he changes the thought from positive to solution. Doing so very quickly by making himself answer one simple question. What's one thing I can do right now that could make this better? He looks down, he sees he's got a glove on his hand, he thinks to himself, you know, I could probably focus on playing some defense. It's probably the best thing I can do right now. Now, for this player, earlier I told you about a tool called the performance statement. The two or three items during competition that they focus on and train themselves to focus on. For this player, now again, I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not saying to you, you should go teach your children when they're playing outfield that you should focus on these three things. I'm saying this one player, this is what he focuses on, and it is track the ball, quick feet, follow through. So he's standing in the outfield, and he wants to think about the strikeout, but he forces his thoughts to focus on track the ball, meaning the pitcher has the ball in his hand, on the mound, now in his glove. He is tracking that ball as it sits there in the pitcher's hand and glove. Pitcher starts his windup. Now the ball's headed toward the hitter. He's tracking the ball. Ball makes contact with the hitter's bat and is now headed his way. Now it's part two of his performance statement. Quick feet. Tracks the ball, gets a great read on it. Now it's time for quick feet. Now he gets a great jump. Takes off. We know this is 100% effort. Dead sprint into the corner. Lays out for the catch. Crowd goes wild. He makes the catch. Instead of laying there and standing up and raising his hands as if he's just won the game for his team, he gets up and he follows through. He gets the ball back into the infield. Track the ball. Quick feet. Follow through. Now he goes back to his spot in the outfield. After making the great catch, what do you suppose he wants to think about? What do you think would be natural right there? Wouldn't it be nice if it was the great catch? I'm just curious. You all do 100 things right, one thing less than perfect. What do you think about? This guy's normal, just like you. So he wants to think, wow, if only in the last inning I would have put the bat on the ball. I might be on SportsCenter tonight, baby, top 10. Okay, and then again, a two-step process. One, he recognizes the thoughts are not where he wants them to be. Two, he changes them. He goes from the negative to the positive, doing so very quickly by making himself answer this one simple question. You should start to understand what this question is. I want you, I want you to hear it over and over. That's why I keep saying it. What is one thing I can do right now that could make this better? His answer, track the ball, quick feet, follow through. Here comes that long Fly ball a second time. He's tracking the ball. Gets another great read. Quick feet. Another great jump. Dead sprint into the corner. Lays out a second time. Trying to make the catch. No, 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 no. Right. That's, that's supposed to be Sports Center top 10. Yeah, I guess if you have to explain the joke, probably don't use it, right? <laughs> I need to rework that little section. All right, am I being dramatic or is that real life? I will promise you that is real life. There are going to be professional sporting events on TV tonight. Baseball, hockey, and basketball. And I will guarantee you there are players out there, PCT rules their thinking. And because of it, they are just not playing up to potential. It's normal. There's no possible way it couldn't happen. All right, so let's figure out how do we actually do this training. I want you to think about your brains this way. I'll call this the mental chalkboard, okay? If we opened up the heads in this chalkboard, or if we opened up the heads in this room, what we would see is most of us, this is PCT, this is totally normal, most of us would have this side of the chalkboard completely filled in. 
Some of you are even using margins and every little inch of space you can. You might even be, some of you are trying to borrow space from your neighbor. The goal is we want to learn to get across this line. See, this line is what's so important. Let me try to explain some things because if we can live over here, we know statistically, measurably, we are going to be happier, healthier, more successful. My favorite statistic about people with the RSF mindset, they live up to 14 years longer than normal people. 14 years. You think, well, how in the heck can the way you think cause you to live? I mean, think 14 years. If we go 14 years back, that'd be, uh, what is that, 2008? Think, what were you doing in 2008? That's a long time. And then couple that with all the way you have a significant increase in health, happiness, and success. All because of the way we think, and I'm going to explain. All right, now, let's use Nando Parado as an example. Nando's example is really pretty terrific for a number of reasons. A lot of lessons. So Nando has a, a major problem. Got a plane crash, all right? And what he does is he gets his first solution up on the board. Anybody remember the first solution? Inventory. I, I, I think I shared with you. It lasted 17 days. So for 17 days, anytime Nando caught himself thinking about poor me or this is really bad, he refused. He said, no, what can I do? Inventory, you know, what can we do health-wise? What, what about uh, resources? You know, anything with inventory of anything that could possibly help. Right now, unfortunately, after 17 days, that solution got crossed off his mental chalkboard. It was no longer viable because in that avalanche, nothing else really mattered. Inventory no longer mattered, and a lot of the inventory was gone. All right, so you have to understand this is the, the way the brain works. You have a problem, you might get a solution up. And while the solution sticks, your brain stays over here. That's a really, really good thing. I'm gonna show you why in, in a moment. But the second the solution no longer is viable, we default where? Right back to here. It's totally normal. So the key is you have to be relentless about getting a solution that sticks on the board. Nando was, he gets his second solution up. Anybody remember his second solution? Avalanche comes down, dig. Now, it might sound crazy, but I don't quote this, but I think it's true. The dig lasted eight days. They dug everything out. You know, there were bodies they had to take care of, and then they repositioned the fuselage so if it happened again, they would be protected. But after eight days, that solution goes away. And again, what happens when you don't have a solution that sticks, that's viable on the board? Where does your brain default to? Right back there. So the key is this tool is not called solution focus. It's called relentless solution focus. You must always have a solution that sticks on the board. All right, now let me ask you this. It's a big sticking point. You will not be relentless if you believe there are some problems that don't have solutions. You will quit. It is a true psychological phenomena. It's called learned helplessness. And it stops people from trying. And a big piece of it is, if we don't examine this idea of do all problems have solutions, most people will very quickly believe, in fact, this is our average, two tries, and we believe it's impossible. This is what normal is, two tries, and we quit. Now, I'm just curious, is that relentless? Absolutely not. Two tries, two whole tries. You know, and I've got this great job where I get to study all these really relentless people. Say, I've learned over time what relentless means. Here's what I've learned the definition of relentless is. If you have a heartbeat, 
If you have a breath in your body, think about it. Nando Parado's down to his last breath. You owe it to the organism to get across this line. You must get across this line. And relentless is if you have a heartbeat or a breath. Now, let's go back. I want you to answer the question for yourself. This is not, we're not going to debate right here, okay? Do all problems have solutions? Some of you saying yes. Some of you saying no. And I know with this crowd, some of you are coming up with your qualifiers for yes or no. Listen, here's the thing. Whatever you just answered, you're right. And the problem with that is if you'll allow yourself to believe that there are some problems that don't have solutions, you'll quit early on a lot of problems, not just the ones that truly in your thought doesn't have the solution. Now, if you look at science, the answer, scientifically speaking, is yes, every problem has a solution. And here's why. Now, I want to be very clear. No matter how positive your mindset is, there are going to be plenty of problems that you can't change the landscape of the problem. Nando could have been 10 times more positive than he was, and it still wasn't going to change the fact that 18 people died upon impact and a lot of people died over the 72-day experience. His sister and his mother were among two of the people who perished. He couldn't change that with his mindset. There are some things, it's called the brutality of life, that we're not going to have the ability, no matter how positive or no matter what we do, that we can change the problem itself. However, what science tells us is, at the bare minimum, what we can always do is change at least how we're dealing with the problem, even if it's just an inch. And that's the part that causes things that are deemed in science to be impossible to become possible. It's called the plus one solution. On the sheet, I want you to write this down, plus one solution. Stop defining solutions this way. And the, the normal definition is so bad. Normal definition of solution, complete resolution to the problem. Look, we don't need complete resolution. We just need improvement. So I want you to think any improvement whatsoever, any improvement whatsoever even an inch to the current situation, that's a solution. Any improvement whatsoever, even an inch. Now, I want you to understand the biological component of this. And if you look on your sheet, it says, how do you know if you're in need of RSF? See, most of us, because this is so normal, we have no idea that we're even over on this side of the board. Now, here's what I have found. We're really good, it's, it's quite easy as humans to identify when someone else is going negative, when someone else is over on this side of the board. But the self-evaluation, now that's a whole lot more difficult. Now the good news is there is a built-in alarm system that every one of us has. We've been given at birth and it literally screams. It's 100% effective every single time we're on this negative side of the board. Most people just don't know what it is and we're really not being taught about it. And there's a financial reason not to teach people about it. I'm not gonna get into that too much, but what would you guess the alarm system is that is 100% effective that tells us, hey, your thoughts are on the wrong side of the board? Anyone in here ever experience stress? Anxiety, fear, anger, depression, or guilt? See, human beings, we do not possess the ability to experience negative emotion without the punctuation, without PCT pushing a neurotransmitter called cortisol into our bloodstream. 
Cortisol is responsible for all 100% of the time a human being experiences stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt, any negative emotion whatsoever. Now, we're just not being taught this very much. And I'm, I'm real quick, I want people to understand, biologically speaking, 8% of our population should be on, they're called SSRIs. They're any antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication given to the population today is in a category of drug called SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. Right now, our population is approaching 30%. There are a lot of people taking the meds that would benefit from just understanding how to control thoughts. Now again, 8% biologically speaking need to be on the meds. But I certainly, with my own children, people, I, I wanna test it first. I don't want that to be first case. Let's just go right to the meds. Think. In that 22% differential, how much money do you think is being made there? It's not billions. Put a T and an R on the front of that one. All right, now, point being, you have to be able to recognize when you're here. And this is extremely difficult for us because it's totally normal. We're built to be here. Remember, it used to keep us alive, but now it hurts us because of the cortisol. Go back to the memory I said, a person lives up to 14 years longer. Cortisol is a toxin. It's a poison. Even though we're self-administering, and thankfully it's small doses, but even small doses of poison administered consistently over extended periods of time, it's gonna add up. All right, so biologically speaking, this cortisol, it's the alarm system. And you know you are experiencing a push of cortisol if, question number five, Please write this down. I call them the nasty six. I want you to write all six of these down. I'll give them to you again because I just think it might be faster recognizing. Negative emotions, a little bit heady. These are a little bit more practical and real. Stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. Stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, guilt. All right, now remember it's a two-step process, but to me the hardest step is realizing that you're here. If you can learn to spot PCT, you have a competitive advantage over other human beings, period. You can use this advantage. I'm telling you, this is a real competitive advantage. All right, so that's the first step. But then we do have to get across the line. Remember, we don't need to get from here, the plane crash to perfection. I'm climbed off the mountain and everyone lived. We just need to get across the line and here's why. When your brain releases the cortisol, not only does it make you feel like garbage, but cortisol pushes you into fight or flight. All that is is a very simplified system that we've been given. It's pretty awesome in its simplicity. You lose your ability for detailed thinking. Do you think in performance, whether it be a conversation with your spouse, you're trying to win a case for a client, you're trying to make a good decision at the bar, do you think any of those performances, it's a good thing to lose the ability for detailed thinking? Answer is absolutely not. Those would be really bad times to lose the ability for detailed thinking. But that's exactly what cortisol forces you to do. So we need to get across the line because the second we cross the line and we stop thinking about the problem and start thinking about a solution, I want to be clear, you don't have to experience perfection. You have to just start thinking about what might improve the situation. Set plus one, your brain over here begins to release a whole new set of neurotransmitters. You've got epinephrine, you've got serotonin, you've got dopamine, you've got epinephrine. 
All those neurotransmitters, they do two really, really great things for the human species. One, you feel a lot better. Energy, happiness, momentum. This is the biological component of momentum. People don't understand there is a true biological component of momentum. Not to mention, the neurotransmitters actually here make you smarter. So homeostasis is here. When you think about your problems, you become dumber. You feel like garbage and you become dumber. Conversely, when you get across the line and refuse to think about the problem and instead just start thinking what could make it better, what's one inch of improvement, you now start to feel a lot better and you become smarter. Not smarter than when you're here, smarter than homeostasis. The goal is to live over here. Health, happiness, and success are significantly and measurably increased with this RSF mindset. I want to cover everything in here. The tool, though, to get you from here to here is one simple question. You just ask it to yourself. Here's the question. What is one thing I can do differently that could make this better? It's written at the bottom of the page right there if I went too fast. The RSF tool, that is my favorite base of the question. You can obviously change some of the foundation of the question. The two pieces that I don't want you to ever change, don't ask for two improvements. Don't ask for three and don't ask for five. One. What's one? What's one thing I can do to make it better? One thing you can do, one thing we can do. And don't be looking for perfection. Nobody ever climbed a mountain in one step. Nobody. It's never going to happen. You achieve feats that seem to be impossible with just one step at a time. You must just get your mind over to improvement. I wrote this in my first book. It may be the smartest thing I ever put on paper. When an individual learns to emphasize improvement over perfection, progress accelerates dramatically. Screw perfect. All right? Now, again, you must always have a solution on the board. You must be relentless about having one up there. Every single problem has a solution. All right? Here's my favorite quote from that book you've been given. There's always a solution, always. If you get one thing from this talk, if you just remember those words and force yourself to say it next time you're in a problem, it'll help. It'll start you moving in the right direction. I'm going to say it again. There's always a solution. Always. Just look for that one little inch of improvement, and then things start to open up for you. This is where people quit. All right, now, inevitably what happens, you know, I do this talk, and I don't get a lot of pushback. I mean, I don't think there's many people that say, yeah, no, I, I don't want to sign up for increased health, happiness, and success. That just, you know, one minute a day, three times a week, that just that feels like way too much work. Probably not the big reward I'm looking for. I don't get that a lot. And in fact, what happens is a lot of people kind of hear this information. They say, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that. Or I get this one a lot too. Oh, you know, my wife needs to hear this. Or my, or my husband or my children. And listen, don't take this the wrong way. If they were here and you weren't, they, they might likely be thinking you're the one that needs to hear it. Remember, it's really easy to know when somebody else is negative. Self-assessment is hard. But what will happen, whether it be at work or in your family, you're going to take this information and you might confuse it a little bit and you're going to think, yeah, my job now is to jam my solutions down everyone else's throat. You want me to tell you how that's going to go? Not well. I'll save you the heartache. 
Okay, so I, I traveled before COVID. I was 11 days a month. I was on the road traveling, doing talks. And uh, thankfully, I'm kind of back. I, you know, it's my first day back. I was on the road for seven days and uh, three days before that. And I'm hitting the road again next week. So it's happening again. And I, I kind of remind myself of this. But when I would get on the road, I'd come home. My wife, who, listen, she's one of the most positive people I know. In fact, the license plate on her vehicle reads RSF for us. She talks about RSF. The, my kids talk about RSF more than I do. It's awesome. But I have noticed this. When I come home from a trip, I'll meet my wife. She kind of hits me in the kitchen. And she'll go into a three or four minute diatribe of all the things that have gone wrong while I've been out gallivanting across the country having a good old time. How do you think it goes? I walk in, she tells me about the problems, and I say, Mara, you know what you should have done while I was gone? I might as well head back out the door. All right, now compare that with, I walk in, she vents the problems, and instead of me being responsible for all the solutions, which she doesn't want to hear anyway, how about if I ask this question? Hey, what's one, one thing I can do to make it a little bit better for you next time? Hey, fellas. Write that down. That right there is worth the price of admission, I promise you. And some of you ladies, it would benefit you writing that down. Now, again, your job is not to become an expert at solving everyone else's problems. You don't want that responsibility. Trust me, as a therapist, you don't want that. I was a rookie therapist. I thought people were coming and paying me for me to tell them what to do. That's terrible. That's what rookie therapists think. Your job is to be an expert at asking solution-focused questions. Somebody comes to you with a problem, hey, what's one thing you can do to make it better? What's one thing we can do? What's one thing I can do? If you've got a problem in your own head, you ask that question and I want you to be relentless. All right, now, pep talk's over. How do you train it? Because again, you can go listen to the top trainer in the country talk about getting their biceps strong, but until I go in that gym and start doing some bicep curls, nothing will happen. Here's the training. If you'll go, you've got uh, in your packet, Two additional sheets. They're called success logs. Those four questions are scientifically proven to rewire the brain so that PCT begins to go away and RSF becomes natural and normal. I will tell you I've used those same questions for 20 years. Not because I can't find other questions. I can't find anything better. Like, this is pure science. And if I'm a case study, trust me, this baby works. Your life will be a lot better. If you're a person that likes drama, you will hate this. I mean, hate it. This will take all drama out of your life. You don't sit and worry about problems that are going to happen. But if they do happen, which they will, you just go to work on fixing them. That's a pretty good way to go. All right, now let's go through the four questions. In the last 24 hours, what have I done well? I'm just curious. When's the last time you gave yourselves credit for anything? I know the answer to that, and shame on you. Stop it. Stop focusing on your imperfections and start recognizing some things you're doing well. You have a very important job. You're helping people. You're helping people that need the type of help you have and have no idea how to do it. I mean, it's a very important job. You gotta give yourself some credit. Now, a done well, please write this down. It's the last thing I'm going to have you write down. I want you to have the definition of a done well because it gets, you know, people say, well, I, I didn't do anything well. I didn't cure cancer today. So what did I do well? I didn't win that case. Look, stop that. 
A done well is anything that promotes personal or professional health, even by an inch. Anything that promotes personal or professional health, even by an inch. I worked out today. Well, I work out every day. I mean, I'm one of these guys that I don't feel right if I don't work out. I might go 100, 300, 500 days in a row without missing a workout. Could I count that? Even though I've done it 200 days in a row, can I count a workout? Has it done well? Yes. I had two beers last night instead of three. Could I count that? That's a major win. Yeah, that's, you know. Two cups of coffee instead of three. I texted my wife. She didn't answer, but I texted. Anything. Search for the small. It's not about the magnitude of the answer. You're retraining the way you think. You currently don't think, what did I do well? You currently think, what's wrong with me? Retrain the way you think. So don't, you have to answer and search for the small. It makes no difference how small the answer is. Make sure you understand that point. Question number two, what's one thing you want to improve? Not two things and not perfection. One thing you want to get just a little bit better at. Question number three, what's one action step? And then you simply then ask, one to 10, how am I doing with RSF? You keep it front of mind. Normal people with RSF on that one to 10, normal is somewhere around four to five. Highly successful, nine to 10. You can get there. If you see success logs, and I'd tell you, one minute is all it should take. If you'll do a success log three times a week minimum, you cannot stop the brain from becoming more RSF-based and less PCT-based. Obviously, the more you do it, and I don't want you doing it more than once a day, but if you're doing it five, six, seven days a week, it's going to have a bigger, faster impact than if you're doing it three days a week. If you get off track, who cares? Just get back on track. If you go, ah, it's been two weeks since I've done one. That's all right. Just do one today. It takes one minute. If I would have told you an hour ago, in three minutes a week, I can guarantee you, you're going to have a competitive advantage. And I'm going to tell you, look, I don't work with the Bush League. Like, I'm really lucky in the jobs that I get. Really lucky. Is it luck or is it science? I prefer to think that luck wore out probably 10 to 15 years ago. Science is now taking over. This stuff works, but you got to do it. You got to do it. Think in your head. It's the last thing I'm going to ask you to do, and then I'm going to get out of your way. When are you going to commit one minute a day to filling out those success logs? Come on, write it down. Come up with the answer. And then I want you to think, where? Where are you going to do it? I know for me, I get to my office every morning, whether it be my home office or my office down in Clayton. And before I get to sit in my chair, I have to start the success log. I got a big black folder on my home office and I got just the printed out sheets just like this down in Clayton. But before I sit down, so I do them in the morning. I think what I do previous, you know, 24 hours that I'm proud of. When are you going to do it and where? I want you to answer those two questions. When are you going to do it and where? Okay, I'm going to finish the way I started with a thank you. I know you don't hear it enough and I know you're not telling yourself enough. You have really important jobs and I know you get kicked around the media and you know look that's just it's the way it is I can't see those forces changing anytime soon you got to know this the fact that you're here trying to get better so you can help more people that's something to be really really proud of I want you giving yourselves a whole lot more credit than you've been doing please please keep doing the work you're doing you're making an impact Thanks for having me. Be relentless out there.
Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.